So Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for uh, just how it, it, uh, just, it just highlights you. It highlights Christ in, in your glory. And so we pray this evening that uh, we would come away in awe of you, uh, in, in awe of all that you are, uh, just uh, just more encouraged to worship because we have a better understanding of what you're doing in this time. Thank you, Father, for uh, for your word, and we pray that you would honor yourself through the preaching of your word this evening. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. No matter who you voted for in November or how you feel about the current political situation in our country, it's clear that we're living in uncertain times. We have a pandemic that's still raging in our world. Right? We, we kind of thought that it would be nice if once once uh, the clock hit, mid hit midnight on uh, January 1st that uh, everything would turn over and be okay, but alas, it's not. Right? You heard earlier that Alex is, is still going to be away from his work uh, all the way to the end of the year. Right? We, we thought it would be over, but it's not. Right? And we, we even had a vaccine that was able to be made in record time. But now we're hearing news of a mutant strain bounding about, and we're wondering, oh man, does our does our vaccine uh, apply to this to this mutant strain? Right? We we have uh, the, our president elect. He's calling for unity in his speech, uh, in his acceptance speech. But both sides of American politics, uh, the of uh, of the American political parties, have sharpened their knives and they've significantly raised the emotional temperature instead of lowered it. In recent weeks, some American Christians have feared the loss of our democracy. Some American Christians have feared an embrace of socialism. Some Christians who have observed the uh, reaction of the tech giants to recent events fear that persecution is coming. American Christians are all over the map when it comes to what we've seen in these past few months. And we know that our way of life, our, uh, just what, we, uh, what we see in the world, it, it's all ha has become rapidly unsettled. Now we know from scripture 
that the world, it will get worse before Jesus comes back to set everything right. We know that. And yet, it can still be discouraging and disheartening to see the world around us begin to crumble. And so it's with these realities in mind that I, I point your attention to Psalm 2 this evening. Um, like Alex said, we began our study in, uh, in the Psalms last week. And our, our study in the book of Psalms is timely for what we've experienced in this past year. Because the Psalms invite those who worship God to worship Him, not just in the good times of life, but in all seasons of life. So Psalm 1 addresses individuals and it helps us see that those who want the blessing of Yahweh are those who avoid the way or the lifestyle of the wicked and they will also delight in the commands of Yahweh now Psalm 2 it connects to Psalm 1 because uh, what we see is that it ends with the very familiar description of those who are blessed just like Psalm 1 was talking about how blessed is the one right Psalm 2 does the same thing but it ends the same way Except for this time, it addresses a wider audience. Right? And it's addressing uh, basically the world. It addresses the rulers and the leaders of the world, but it addresses the world. Now, Psalm 2, like Psalm 1, does not tell us who the author is, nor does it give us a precise timeline for when it was written. However, it's, uh, it is clear just from certain uh, words like the Lord's anointed, that this psalm was likely written sometime after David had received the King David had received the Davidic covenant from Yahweh. You can look at that in 2 Samuel 7 if you are not familiar with that. Now, uh, some scholars suggest that Psalm 2 was recited during the coronation ceremonies of the Davidic kings, but there's not a lot of evidence that supports that claim. So it's better for us to take a look at Psalm 2 as a messianic psalm, a psalm that foretells the coming of Messiah. Now, uh, there may be some applications to a king or perhaps kings uh, in history, but it best applies to Jesus Christ because he alone fulfills the conditions, all the conditions that are described in this psalm. Now, we're going to take a, a deeper dive into Psalm 2 this evening. And what we're going to see is that our God cannot and will not be stopped. Yeah, there's going to be times of difficulty. Yes, there will be uh, things that do not seem to uh, be going according to uh, what we think are God's plans. But what we'll see is that God is firmly in control. God is firmly in control. Chaos and bloodshed will occur in this life, but they will not be the solution for disrupting the plan of God to save his people from their sins. And so this big picture perspective of Christ's rule and reign gives us hope to face the disappointments and discouragements of this life. We know from the book of Hebrews uh, Hebrews 6, 13 to 20, uh, it reminds us that because no one is greater than God in righteousness and in power, because God himself is, is faithful, he takes it upon himself to fulfill his promises to his people. And therefore, he is our source of hope. The hope that we have in him is to make everything right. It's to bring about all of his promises. And when we have that hope, it's an anchor for our souls, right? He is our anchor for our souls. And so when we encounter these times of uncertainty and difficulty, we're going to have our hope in him. We're going to endeavor. We're going to strive to place our hope in him, even when it's hard. 
And so we're going to see that this evening in Psalm 2 through four truths that encourage us to worship Yahweh in uncertain times. Four truths that encourage us to worship Yahweh in uncertain times. You can take a screenshot of this slide if you'd like. Um, we're going to go through it. I'm going to give you the the points, but if you want, want to know what the points are ahead of time, we're going to see the rejection of Yahweh is vain. Uh, Yahweh established his king. The king will sovereignly reign, and Yahweh is merciful. Now, the first truth that encourages us to worship Yahweh in uncertain times is the, the fact that re the rejection of Yahweh is vain. Okay, The rejection of Yahweh is vain, verses 1 to one through three. Okay, so Psalm 2, verse 1 says this, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Okay, so we had already noted in our introduction that there is no clear timeline for when this psalm was written. And since there is no record of the nations all being against Israel and her king, we recognize that the psalmist is not referring to a historical situation uh, in, in this point, but is instead making a widespread observation, a general observation about the attitude of the world towards God. And in fact, you know, Jesus, he makes a similar observation regarding the world's attitude against himself in John 15, 18 to 20, when he tells the disciples uh, to be prepared for the world to hate them because they hated him. And so the psalmist, when he's noting that the nations are in an uproar, he's, he's noting that the nations of the world, they all have this attitude of restlessness. They're all raging against God. Okay, that's their general attitude. In addition to the nations being in, up, in, the up, in an uproar, the peoples of the earth are said to be devising a vain thing. They're making some plans of some sort. But the outcome of what are, whatever they're planning to do is already known. It's already known. It's vain. It's empty. It will come to nothing. What are the nations in an uproar about? What are the peoples planning? Well, we'll see that clearly in the next two verses. Right? The kings of the earth, they take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear the fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And so what we see here is that the peoples of the earth and their leaders, right? not just the kings, but the judges as well, they're all gathering together. They're all planning to overthrow the reign of Yahweh, and, uh, they're, and uh, they are against his anointed. And you know, we know on this side of history that that is Jesus. The action of the world's leaders in verse 2 makes it clear that we're not talking about an individual posture of, uh, of a world leader's heart against um, against God and his king, what we're talking about is the collective sentiment of the world system, right? the collective uh, attitude of the entire world uh, that is against God. The world wants nothing to do with God, nor do they want anything to do with Jesus. And as you can see in verse 3, the world understands that if they, are, if they reject Yahweh, they're also rejecting his anointed king. And, and, you know, the world, they, they recognize that the, uh, that the consequences, what the consequences of life would be if God was real, right? If God is real, if the claims that God makes about Jesus are real, then 
the world would actually have to submit to God. They would have to turn away from their sins and, and worship God. But that's not what they want. Right? That's not what they want at all. They want to remain in their godlessness. They want to remain in their rebellion against God. They don't want anyone to tell them what to do or how to live. And it's because of that rebellion that they want to tear off the fetters of God. They want to cast away the cords that, that God has on them. Now, fetters and cords uh, are a description of the kind of devices that one would use for farm animals. So it's not necessarily... Uh, the idea of chains put on slaves, but it's, it's the uh, kind of like, um, uh, I guess, ropes that you would, you would use to, to kind of bind the animals together, you know, with the yoke um, and, and get the oxen to, to move together. Um, so uh, they were commonly used by the ancient Israelites to pair the oxen together with the cart, right? You got to tie the, the oxen together. You got to tie the yoke of the oxen to the cart so that you can plow the field. And so um, that's what the fetters and, and the cords are. And so basically what the world uh, doesn't want is they don't want to, be, to do the will of God. Right? They don't want to accomplish his purposes uh, here on earth and the purposes that he gave them. And so they're, they're conspiring to rid themselves of God. And yet what they fail to recognize is that God has the right to tell them what to do. Right? You don't just put uh, you don't put a leash on a dog that's not yours, right? I mean, but you could try, but that dog's not going to listen to you, right? He's probably going to bite you and going to attack you. Right? They fail to recognize that God has the right to tell them what to do. If He created them and gave them their purpose, He has the right to tell them that they're in sin, that they must repent, and that they must return to Him. God rightfully expects that all creation will recognize his kingship and his creatorship. He rightfully expects that. And this rejection of Yahweh is actually something uh, uh, very similar to what happened in the events of the Tower of Babel back in Genesis. If, uh, if you remember, following the flood, God allows for hum humanity to reestablish themselves from Noah's family. And he tells them very clearly in Genesis 9-7 that their duty was to be fruitful and to multiply throughout the whole earth. And this is a command that God had previously given to Adam. So this is nothing new. This is already the purpose of mankind. Now, did they do as God wished? No, they didn't. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying over the whole earth, what we see in Genesis 11 is that the people's they settled in the land of Shinar, and they uh, um, and uh, kind of where Bab Babylon was, right? and they determined that they're going to live there. Uh, we like this place. We're we're going to stay here, and we're going to create such a, a a large, magnificent city for ourselves, a large, magnificent tower for ourselves. That God's going to be so impressed that He's not going to make us go throughout all the earth. He's going to let us all sit here or stay here, right? And that that's rebellion. And that's rebellion against Yahweh because he told them, no, you need to be fruitful and you need to multiply over the whole earth, not just stay in one concentrated spot. The world that we live in is very similar in that we are very rebellious against God. The world around us is so incredibly wicked and against God that they reject what God has clearly said about the world and about himself. And they've replaced objective truth for their own truths. 
Paul says in Romans 1.22 that they profess to be wise. The world professes to be wise. And yet their so-called wisdom proves them to be nothing but fools. And the consequences of which can be seen in Romans 1.28-32. You can turn there if you wish. I'm just going to briefly summarize for us. But... Um, the consequences of, Rome, of uh, rejecting God and, and replacing truth with uh, our foolish so-called truth is that God gives our world over to a depraved mind. And that leads to a lifestyle of doing things which are not proper, uh, being as we are filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, we're full of envy. Uh, there's murder, there's strife, there's deceit, there's malice, we're gossips, there's slanders. Uh, there are haters of God. There are those who are insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And, all they, and although they knew the ordinance of God, uh, that uh, those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only uh, they they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's Romans one. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It should ring a bell because that is the world that we live in today. And all these, all these actions, all these attitudes is what is in the world today. And I'm not telling you this to be self-righteous and to say, I don't have any of those or that you don't have any of those. Right? None of us should feel self-righteous when we look at the consequences of rejecting God. Because we understand that sin is real and that it has uh, severe consequences on mankind that we should expect things to deteriorate rapidly and, and I, I remind you of what these what the scriptures say so that you can be wary of the philosophy of the world or so that you can be wary of the thinking that's in the world and we live in it but we're not supposed to be of it and so we can't just uh, we we can't just take uh, what the world says and just run with it all the time we have to be we have to be uh, uh, wise we have to be discerning and we also, we, we, we also ought to be grieved by the depravity that we see. Right? Don't just roll your eyes and think, man, you guys are crazy and ridiculous. I'm glad I'm not you, right? Have compassion. Right? Have compassion on those who are lost and proclaim the gospel to them. Because we know, as the psalmist tells us, that the rejection of Yahweh is vain. It leads to destruction. Right? It leads to the path of destruction. Uh, you know, Jonah he was rebuked by God when when he wanted the Assyrians to, 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 to be killed, right? when he wanted the people of Nineveh to be killed. Because God said, aren't they my people still too? And aren't, aren't they lost to the point where they, the, the people don't know their left hand from the right? Shouldn't I have compassion on them? We should have compassion on those who are lost. Because, even the, because they think that when they choose sin, that they're going to uh, give themselves uh, independence. They're going to win for themselves freedom. But the rejection of Yahweh does not grant independence or freedom. It brings enslavement to sin. It brings judgment for unrepentant sin. And so since the rejection of Yahweh is vain, it doesn't get anywhere. It's empty. Right? We who have placed our faith in God, we can be encouraged because right? even though the world around us might be difficult to figure out, placing our faith in God actually does something. It's not vain. It's not empty. It saves us. 
everything else that the world might do is me. And it does lead to judgment. But praise be to God that he would have mercy on us and save us. Though we too at one point rebelled against him. He, he saved us because he loved us. He saved us because he chose us. And that's something that we can be thankful for. That, that leads us, though, to uh, our next encouragement to worship Yahweh in uncertain times, which is that God, that, uh, God or Yahweh established his king. Yahweh established his king. Um, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. When the peoples of the earth rebel against Yahweh, it does not go unnoticed. God is not unaware of the rebellion that has been staged against him. He is fully aware of it, and he responds to it. Yahweh's first response is seen here in verse 4. As he sits on his throne in heaven, he's observing all that the nations are doing. He sees their plotting and their planning, and what does he do? He laughs. He laughs at the foolishness of a people who think that they can successfully rebel against him. This is not the laugh of a parent who thinks that his child is hilarious and cute. It's, it's, not, it's not that kind of laugh. It's, it's a laugh of derision, mocking. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? Because right? we who know God and respect God, like we, we understand who he is, right? Can you imagine how terrifying it would be to know that God sees what we're doing and he's laughing at us because he knows that what we're planning on doing, what we're thinking about doing is worthless? That's terrifying. That's terrifying to think that God would look at us and be like, uh-uh, nuh-uh, you're so silly. Right? That'd be terrifying to know that. And you know, uh, kind of going back to that, um, that illustration from the Tower of Babel, Yahweh did do that. They thought that they were going to show God who's boss. They thought, hey, if we build this power, this tower big enough, God's going to be impressed. He's going to let us hang out here. He's not going to, he's not going to move us around. Right? But instead of being so impressed by the size of the tower, Moses shows us what God thought of the tower when uh, in Genesis 11.5, he says that God came down from heaven to take a look at the city. Right? They said, we're going to build a tower all the, that reaches all the way up to heaven. And God's like, oh, that's, that's still too small. Let me, let, me, let me come down and take a closer look at that. God's mocking them. He's mocking them in their big, big tower. He's not, he's not impressed. That tower wasn't high enough. He still had to come down and take a little look. Their best efforts were not enough for God to be impressed. And therefore, he confused their language. And then he did the very thing that they were trying to avoid. He sent them to fill the earth just as he intended. In a similar fashion, Yahweh looks at the efforts of the world to reject him and he scoffs. Or he laughs at them and he scoffs at them. No matter what they try, they will not prevail against the Lord. We know from verse 2, it's vain. Their plotting and planning is vain. Even if the world could somehow amass a worldwide coalition with all the best trained soldiers in the world and and all the best... uh, all the best technology and, and all the money that they need to try and wage a war against Yahweh, they will not be able to stand. Can you, I mean, can you think about that? Can you fathom that? The, the entire might of the world 
whether it's military strength, technological power, or uh, financial power, all of that, if you combine all of it, it will, ha it will do nothing, absolutely nothing, to beat God. It won't even slow him down. I don't, have, I don't have a lot of time for this, but in Revelation, at the very, very end, you see that Satan is released. I believe this is Revelation 20. He's released. Right? He gets all the nations together. They're planning to, to fight against Yahweh, and he just wipes them out in an instant. Right? That's the power of our God. And so this should be terrifying to us. The fact that God sits, or, or to anyone who rebels against God, and we should be a, have a healthy fear of him too, right? That God, he sits in the heavens, he laughs, and he has power. Right? Verse 5, verse 5 and 6. And he will speak to them in his anger, and he's going to terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And so Yahweh's first response to the, to the rebellion was to laugh. The second response to the rebellion is he reveals his end game. Right? He reveals his plan and his path to victory. And it's going to be through the reign of the king. The reveal of Yahweh's anointed, Yahweh's king, that's not a friendly reveal. As we can see from verse 5, God's mocking of the nations, it reveals his righteous anger and fury over their rebellion. Again, right? He's not laughing at them because he's like, oh, you guys are so cute. Right? It's not like when we're looking at puppies or babies and laughing because they, they, they do silly things. Right? This is anger. This is anger and fury because they have rejected him. And so he shows them that he means business. He's going to deal with his, their rebellion through his king. Notice that when God speaks, right, that his anger is registered immediately. As the nations, they're terrified by what he says. He, he dismays them in his anger. Or he terrifies them in his fury. You know, God, God's anger and his fury, they're, they're not to be taken lightly or, or to be un, underestimated. Uh, and, and sometimes we wonder, why is God angry? And why is God angry? Um, and, and in Exodus 20, verse 5, it's in the Ten Commandments. Basically, we find ourselves in the Ten Commandments. God, he, he reveals why he, is, why he will be uh, provoked to anger. It's because he's a jealous God. Right? He tells Israel, we're in a relationship. You and I are together. Do not worship the, the, the gods of the other nations. Right? Because we are in a relationship. And I am the one true God. You've seen that. Don't go follow after other gods. He says in Isaiah 42, 8, that he is the one true God. He's not going to give his glory to another, nor his praise to graven images. He is fiercely protective about who he is and the worship that he deserves because he alone is God. Right? He is alone is righteous. He alone is true and because he has hand-chosen Israel to have a relationship with them, he is rightfully, uh, uh, rightfully jealous for them. He rightfully wants them back because they are in a relationship. And technically speaking, right, because he created us all, we're his people too. Right? The, the, world is his, are his people, the people in the world are his people too. Right? So he rightfully 
wants our hearts. He rightfully wants our love. He rightfully deserves it. Right? Because he is, because he alone is holy. He alone is true. He created all things. Every single breath that you and I take right, is sustained by God. If God were to, to uh, no longer choose to sustain our breath, you and I would die where we stand or sit. And so when he is not acknowledged as God, when he is not honored as God, he is rightfully angered because he alone has infinite worth he alone is worthy of worship and so the re so the rejection of him it elicits this angry response and rightfully so he's not out of bounds and so yahweh's specific response to the people's rebellion is the establishment of his king jesus right? jesus shares god's nature he shares God's nature. He's one with God. And he's going to reign from Zion or Jerusalem. In ancient times, the, the nations knew that Yahweh was the God of Israel. They understood that, uh, that Israel worshipped Yahweh. And, and when God reveals that he has established his king upon Zion, he basically is putting the world on notice. Essentially, he's saying, you might have thought that I was far away from you guys. But I am not far away. My king is in the capital of Israel. You cannot win, for he's going to win. When the king is in the capital, you know that he's going to come. Right? That, that he is in the seat of power and that he's going to come. And so that's what uh, Yahweh is revealing here. And this is a reminder for Christians that God is not blind. He's not blind to injustice. He's not passively watching the events of world history as if it doesn't matter to him. He will respond. In fact, he has already responded. He has made known that his king has been established. That's perfect tense, right? It's established in the past and he will continue to be established and he will reign. And that leads us to the third truth. The third truth that encourages us to worship Yahweh in uncertain times and that is the king will sovereignly reign. The king will sovereignly reign. He won't be thwarted, but he will sovereignly reign. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So in verses 4 to 6, Yahweh was clearly speaking. But here in verses 7 through 9, the speaker shifts to the anointed, to the anointed one, the king that Yahweh has installed upon Zion. And as he speaks, he's telling his audience what Yahweh said to him. And, he, and the first thing that we see is that Yahweh declared the anointed to be his son. And that's a unique statement from Yahweh because as we saw earlier, Yahweh does not share his glory with another. The author of Hebrews actually makes it very clear in Hebrews 1.5 that Yahweh's anointed could be none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because God has never spoken to one of the angels as if they are his only son. They may have been recognized as the sons of God, plural, but never has an angel been identified as the son 
of God, right? the Son of God, in, in recognizing that the anointed is his Son. Right? That's, what, um, uh, that, that's what this idea of I've begotten you, or, I've chosen you, I, I've pointed you out. Right? The Yahweh declares that the anointed king is unique. Um, he shares the same nature as God, therefore he is God. Right? And interestingly enough, when you go back to verses 2 and 3, even the world kind of recognizes that. Right? To go against God is to go against God's anointed. And so as Yahweh declares before everyone that his anointed is his son, he backs up this assertion by providing the son with an inheritance. Verses 8 through 9. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. God the Father promises the Son that his inheritance is the nation. It's the world. And we understand that this is only right because God owns all things, and he creates all things. Therefore, his Son, who is united with him, has claim to the nations as well. And David reminds us of that in Psalm 24, 1-2. He says that the, the earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And because God, he founded the seas. He established the rivers. Right? He's the one who established everything, and so he has the right, therefore, to lay claim to these things and to give it to his son. In verse 9, we see that while Yahweh's king will receive the nations as an inheritance, the judgment comes first. The judgment comes first. We know from, from our vantage point in history that before Jesus sets everything right, our king is going to return to to judge the earth for their sin first. Our God certainly is a God of love. Make no mistake about that. However, Many in our culture fail to understand the complexities of God. They fail to recognize that love, uh, that, that God being a God of love does not mean that there are no consequences for sin. Make no mistake, John 3.16 is true. God truly loved the world so much that he sent his only son to die for our sins so that when we believe in him, we'll not perish and have everlasting life right? that is true yes yes and amen to that statement but what we recognize also from second peter 3 9 to 10 is that god he's being patient towards us so that uh so that those who need to hear the gospel uh will hear it right? for those uh people to, to know that the day of the lord is coming that they'll hear it right judgment is coming justice is coming and god is being patient towards us, not wanting for any of us to perish. When God eventually sets things right, it doesn't mean that those who have not believed in Jesus Christ and repented of their sins will suddenly come to their senses and have a small window of, of time where they'll all be able to, uh, to suddenly believe upon Christ in a saving way. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But not every single one will do this in love and worship. Those who have rejected Christ and uh, will recognize his lordship when it's too late. 
They'll, re they'll recognize his lordship when their rebellion against him fails. And what awaits them is not healing, but righteous judgment. Their recognition of Jesus Christ as Lord will be of will be as those who are defeated by God. And that's something that we need to take seriously. That's something that should break our hearts. That there are going to be people one day who will who will bow the knee, who will confess that Christ is Lord, but they don't do so because they're because they love God. They don't do so because um, because they worship God. But they're doing so because they've been utterly defeated, and they're about to be sent to an eternity in hell. Now, persecuted and hurting Christians may be tempted to rejoice at the punishment of those who have hurt him or hurt them and rejected God's salvation, but we, we ought to remember that we're no better than those who are judged for rejection because for, uh, uh, for their rejection of God. For if it were not for the mercy and the grace of God, we would similarly be lost in our sins, facing the righteous judgment of God. Right? You and I, we don't have anything to boast about because the salvation we've been given has been given to us by God's grace. Now, Jesus' future sovereign reign over the nations, that is a comforting truth. It occur that encourages us to worship God. Right? We, we, we know that he's not mocked by those who rebel against him. And as much as he loves sinners, he is also equally committed to justice. So those who repent of their sins, who will, will definitely receive the mercy and grace of God. And for that, we, we worship God. Because we, we know that when he does that, he wipes away our sins from us. He wipes away our sins from us. He takes it as far as the east is from the west. And he gives us Jesus Christ's righteousness. But for those who are unfortunate, who unfortunately choose to remain in their sins, they're going to have to give an accounting for their deeds before the king. Our king, he's going to reign in righteousness. He's going to reign in holiness. He's going to reign in love. But he's also going to reign in justice. And so what makes our king's reign so compelling, so worthy of worship, though, um, is the mercy, right? the mercy that he shows us, which is our fourth encouragement to worship God in times of uncertainty, and that is Yahweh is merciful. Yahweh is merciful. We're going to read the whole chunk, uh, verses 12, 10 to 12. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. As the kings and judges of the earth take into consideration what awaits them if they continue to live in rebellion against God, if they continue to walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, and sit in the seat of scoffers. They are implored by the psalmist to stop and consider the mercy of God. Brothers and sisters, think about this cool fact, that God, he makes known to us what's going to happen in the end before some of it even happens. Right, so we know the end, and he gives us a chance. Right, he gives us a chance. He says, take a look at what's going to happen. 
if you don't want that. Repent. Return to me. And turn your heart to me. Love me. Don't love sin. He gives us that opportunity. He gives everyone that opportunity. And that's why in, in the scriptures, you have um, the biblical authors telling people to consider the mercy of God, to consider what he has done. Though their current path of life will lead them to perish if they continue on in it. These verses show the peoples of the earth that they have a choice. And we referenced 2 Peter 3.9 earlier. God is currently patient towards all who are in rebellion, giving everyone ample opportunity to recognize the kingship of the Lord and to leave their sin behind. That's a paraphrase. But 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God is patient. He doesn't want uh, to, um, he doesn't want people to perish. He's being patient towards us all. We see that God willingly grants salvation in verses 11 through 12 to those who will worship God and show homage to the Son. Doing homage to the Son or, or showing honor to the Son is an act that both recognizes the kingship of God and willingly submits to his reign. In the case for all who have found themselves in league with those who rebel against God, those who do, uh, do homage to the Son will confess sin to God. They'll recognize Jesus Christ as King and Lord and will strive in love to worship God. As we've mentioned before, the wrath and anger of God is kindled against all unrighteousness of mankind. Now, while all sin is rebellion against God, people ultimately will be judged for their refusal to believe in Jesus and the gospel that he preached. And we do not know when the wrath of God against sin will occur. Right? That's why, uh, we're, uh, that's why uh, we're told that his wrath may soon be kindled. It's building, but it hasn't been poured out yet. Right? So we don't know when that's going to occur. And so this warning to the world, this warning to, to those who find themselves in the company of the world as they reject the rule and reign of God is to be heeded seriously. God in his mercy has made known what he will do in the future. And those who wish to find shelter and safety in him will be truly blessed if they listen to him. And repent of their sins. Those who ignore what God says will receive the due punishment for their rebellion. And this is something that we all want to, to take heed of ourselves, right? We want we need to listen to God. And not just in one ear, out the other. Right? Listen to God. Do his will. In all of this, right? Those who have repented of our sins, we can worship God. Or we can worship God because God is certainly glorified when he rightly judges those who are rebellious. But, uh, but uh, we can be uh, even more grateful that he chose to save people like us when we consider that we've been given that gift of faith. Considering what we deserved, it's amazing that God would save sinners like you and me. And, and that's another reason why we can, can worship God in these times of uncertainty. We know the salvation that we have. We know what an amazing Savior we have. And for that reason, we worship God. 
this evening we had an opportunity to look at Psalm 2 together. And while most of this is not new to any of you, I hope that you were able to see just a small picture, a small part of the majesty of God, the might of God, as he sovereignly reigns over all creation despite the chaos we find ourselves in today. Brothers and sisters, you have not put your faith in a powerless God. You have put your faith in the all-powerful God. And you remember the, that old uh, children's song, or he's got the whole world in his hand. You have not placed your faith in a weak Savior. He is all-powerful. And so, though you may be distressed, though you may be discouraged, turn to Jesus. Look at who He is. Remember who He is. Remember what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will be doing. It might seem like we're in a, in a hurricane of uncertainty. But he is not only an anchor for our souls that keeps us from shipwreck, but he is our very shelter in whom we can take refuge. And so, as a result, we worship Yahweh all the more in these times of uncertainty. And those who reject Yahweh, they're going to find ultimately that the rejection is vain. Any pain and suffering the rebellious cause to us will be dealt with justly. God will justly deal with unrighteousness and hurt. He will heal and bind up those wounds. And we can be assured of this reality because God has already told us that he's established his king. Right? Jesus is coming. We don't know exactly when, but he is coming. And when he comes, so comes that judgment. But until then, we continue to look, at, look towards him with eyes of faith, and we point people to God's mercy, or the fact that God is giving everyone an opportunity to repent. The blessing of Yahweh is available to all who worship him and live righteously. Psalm 1. And even here, in, in the end of Psalm 2, uncertainty should not be a reason for us to falter in our worship of God. Instead, what God has revealed to us in his word strengthens our resolve to worship him even when everything around us is unknown. We're going to have uncertainty in our lives. You know, it's just part of part of life. And that's why we need one another. Right? Because when we lose focus, when we when we can't see, we need our brothers and sisters to come alongside us to help us up. Right, and to tell us truth so that we remember that we worship a powerful God, a powerful Savior. He cannot be beat. He's going to win in the end. Because of that, we worship all the more. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for uh, just allowing for us to see more of you in Psalm 2. And as we see more of you, we, we recognize that the worship of you is not necessarily just being in awe of you because you saved us, 
but also being in awe of you, recognizing your great power. Father, we recognize that because of our sin, each one of us deserves your wrath. You could have saved none of us, and you would have still been good. You would have still been right. We are nothing before you. We are but dust. We echo what David says in Psalm 8. What, who, who is man that you would that you would pay attention to us? That you would love us? We are no one. We don't deserve it. And yet, in your grace and in your mercy, you astoundingly choose us. And many of us that you've chosen to save, we're nobodies in this earth. We are not the powerful. We are not the rich. There is nothing in us that is deserving of salvation, and yet you give it to us because you love us. Wow. Thank you, Father. Help us, Lord, to be more in awe of you and to honor you as you deserve. We pray that you would also just give us a heart of compassion for those who are lost right now. That we would desire earnestly their salvation. Help us not to be fearful, but to be bold. And to speak the truth in a timely way so that those who do not know you may come to, uh, to a saving knowledge of you if it's your will. Thank you, Father, for our time this evening, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.